This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, let's get to it for our hot question of the day. And this has to do with the upcoming federal election. As we were just talking about in the news, the Angus Reid Institute is out with their latest public opinion poll, and it shows not very good news for the federal liberals at all. In fact, 44% of those who voted for the federal liberals in 2015 now disapprove of the prime minister and the job he's doing. And 51% of them now plan to vote for another party or they are undecided. So people were asked how they would vote if the election were held, say, tomorrow. 38% said they would vote progressive conservative. Uh, 25% said they would vote liberal. 18% said they'd vote NDP. And 11% said they'd vote green. Now for the conservatives and the NDP, that's pretty much the same as the last set of polling that Angus Reid did about a month ago. But the federal liberals are down three points and the greens up Three, So you can kind of see where some of that support is going. So we thought we would ask you for our hot question of the day today. Given that the election is still months away, right? And a lot changes. A lot of people just simply do not pay attention. They do not engage until the election campaign is fully underway in that four or five week period, right? Before we actually cast our votes. So we're asking you, have you actually made up your mind on who you're going to vote for in the federal election this fall. It's about six months away or so. Have you actually decided? You can say, yes, I have decided, or no, I can be swayed. What are your choices on that? So go to simisarah980 to cast your vote. You can also email me, simi at cknw.com. And if you have a moment, give us a call on our buzz line and explain your thinking on this. 604-331-BUZZ, that is 331-2899. I had a number of people who tweeted to say what they do know is who they're not going to vote for. That's what they have decided, but they have not yet decided who they're going to vote for. So I think that if you ask me, that means you can be swayed. So that's how you would answer that because people are saying, what about this option? I'm like, well, if you're still deciding, that means you can be swayed. You just know who you're not going to vote for, right? So cast your vote on this uh, very definitively right now. Like we've gotten almost 100 votes already ever since we put this thing up. And six, no, 89% of people are saying, yes, they've decided. And only 11% at this point are saying they can be swayed. Where do you fall on that? Have you actually decided who you're going to vote for in the federal election this fall? Let me know. Cast your vote, Simi Sarah 980, or you can go to at CKNW. You know, we've had our fair share here in Canada of stories involving judges in different parts of the country who say things, you know, in sexual assault trials that just end up really angering a lot of people. And there's been a lot of demand for change on that front. As a result of that, a couple of years ago, there was a bill that made its way through the House of Commons and looked like it was on track to really make some change. And it would require training for judges on sexual assault law. Like essentially, we all have to keep up our skills when it comes to the job. This bill proposed to make it mandatory for judges to get some training about sexual assaults. Progress, right? 
That was two years ago. And it made it through the House of Commons. But guess what? It still hasn't made it through the Senate. It keeps getting pushed back and pushed back. Even though political parties like the NDP say, listen, they're not happy about this. They want to get it passed. And another voice that is not very happy about this at all with all the delays is Ronna Ambrose. Uh, She was the former interim leader of the Conservative Party right after that 2015 election. She's a former MP and she's the one who actually introduced this bill in the first place. And she joins us now to talk more about it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Simi. Appreciate it. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the history of this bill. You introduced it. Why is that? What were you hoping to achieve? Well, it's... I'll tell you what, it was actually in British Columbia. I was a student at University of Victoria. I I won't say when, it was a while ago, but I was actually part of this really great uh, project where there was a lot of us students, we sat in on sexual assault trials, we took copious amounts of notes, we watched uh, how prosecutors and defense attorneys and judges treat sexual assault and sexual abuse victims, and what that, um, the outcome of that was a, a study and a research paper that was put together that basically said that they're not treated well. And actually, a lot of people in the system don't understand the law, they don't understand consent, and that we needed to have mandatory training for judges in particular because of the way they refer to victims in the courtroom. And that was a long time ago. So when I became the leader of the party, I thought, this is my chance to do something. So, because I, I realized it still hadn't happened. Yeah. And so I introduced this bill. And like you said, it's been, a, it was a wonderful experience because everybody came together. It was Thomas yeah. Mulcair at the time. And since then, Jagmeet Singh has been really supportive. And, you know, Andrew Shear now, of course. And Justin Trudeau has been a huge advocate of this bill. He even talks about it at his town hall meetings. So it sailed through the House of Commons after debate and support, lands in the Senate. It's been 716 days. It has sat in the Senate, and it's been excuse after excuse after excuse. And what I finally realized is it's just not a priority for the key senators that make the decisions to move things through the Senate. So, yes, it's been extremely frustrating So for the last few months, I've been on a campaign along with many other women advocates that care about this issue, men and women, because we know, to your point about why is this important, one in three women in Canada will experience sexual violence in their lifetime, and only one in 10 report it. And when you talk to those victims, you find out that two-thirds of them have no confidence in our court system. So they don't have the confidence that if they come forward, that they'll be treated properly. And that means also how the law is interpreted, how the law is dealt with. So there's lots of examples that we know of already that show that judges that judges aren't applying the law properly. Right. And, and interestingly, one thing I'll tell you, Kim Campbell, who's a former prime minister, uh, works with me on this, and she she's the one that introduced the the no means no, you know, the rape law and many years ago in the 80s. And, and we talked a lot about what we could do to make things better. And the truth is the law in Canada is very good. Our rape laws are excellent. But they're not being applied properly because they're very complex. And sexual assault trials are among the most traumatizing and difficult experience that anyone can go through. And, and we need people to be trained in what consent means, what the law actually is. And right now we have judges in Canada 
believe it or not, Sydney, that are appointed that are corporate lawyers have never dealt with sexual assault issues or overseen or been part of a sexual assault case. And all of a sudden, boom, they're sitting on the bench and they're presiding over a sexual assault case. Oh, okay, so I guess I'm I, I'm assuming here that the, the clock is ticking here because it's becoming more essential to get this to the Senate before the election. It is actually because if this bill doesn't get through by the end of the Senate or by the end of the session, because I'm not a member of Parliament anymore, it will die and it'll be done. And they all have killed it. And there's no doubt there are there is some elements in the Senate, and I've called them old boys for a reason because they happen to be old and they happen to be men. They don't think this is important, and they think that we should never question the judiciary, which is our judges, that the institution of the judiciary is fine the way it is. They think the status quo is okay. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really working with the majority of Canadians and, and senators who think, actually, institutions need to modernize themselves. And, and this is a good thing. It's just training. I feel like with this particular story, though, Rana, is like that you've got so many different things converging here, right? You've got a bill yeah. that has this rare multi-party bipartisan support, which is what Canadians always say they love. Uh, and it's been passed. It's been passed by the people that we elected. And then you've got this unelected body, which people often express a lot of uh, frustration with, that is holding up something that all these people who their representatives voted for this, uh, they're blocking it. And it just seems so incredibly frustrating. It's very frustrating for that exact reason. And interestingly, you, met, you mentioned Jagmeet Singh a bit ago. This bill didn't just get unanimous consent in the House once. Since it passed the House, the, the, the House of Commons itself has come together and, and, and passed two unanimous motions. Jagmeet Singh just got up and did this about two weeks ago again to send a message over to the Senate. Hey, guys, we want this done. This is important to us. We're elected. We passed this. It's three times now we've asked you guys to get this done. And still... It sits there. But so the NDP have no, they have no senators, right? They have no influence in the Senate. So how do we get this thing done? Well, I mean, it happened to be Jagmeet Singh leadership that got this, this motion passed, but every leader supported it. And there's lots of liberal senators. There's lots of conservative senators. And Andrew Scheer and, and Justin Trudeau have also sent the message. We want this passed. And I even know that Justin Trudeau made the effort to have dinner with a number of the liberal senators to encourage them to please get this bill passed. He's been this, actually a, a great advocate of this bill. So, I, you know, there, but it only, in the Senate, it only takes a couple of people. And the other part of that is, you know, they, they're not dealing with voters the way that people in the House of Commons are. So what I've done is said, look, if you need to know how much this means to people, I'm, go- I'm going to make that happen. So we have a website. It's called thejustact.ca. And there's, uh, there's a show your support section. It gives you all kinds of ways in which you can show your support. You can call key senators to say this is important. Uh, you, can, you can sign a petition. But the bottom line is they're actually not used to dealing with the public the way elected officials are. And so I think they just lost the Right. Know, they need the pressure. The moment. Yeah. They need the pressure. So we've been applying the pressure as much as we can, but we're, you know, we're, we're just... We're a, a small but mighty team, especially women's groups, who have very little resources. So we've really counted on the media to help and people, just regular people out there, to send a message, pick up the phone, call a senator, and just say, look, this is important. Let's get this done and make it a priority. Right. And you're right, the clock is ticking. We only have really probably a handful of weeks left 
before this can get done. Okay, well, we can do this. So what is the website again? It's called thejustact.ca. Thejustact.ca. Are you? How are you feeling about it right now, though? Given this pressure, it's gotten a lot of attention this week. Do you feel like if enough these senators are going to get the message? You know what? I'm hoping so. I, I I have been contacted by senators who say I'm equally frustrated. I want it to pass too. I'm doing what I can. There's certain people that don't want it, so I can see the pressure building. So it's working. So I say let's just keep at it. And then also the educational component. This is not, we're not the only country to think about doing this. In the UK, they have this fantastic system called rape ticketing. And judges can't preside over a sexual assault case until they have their rape ticket, which means they've taken comprehensive training in sexual assault law and stereotypes and mythology and all those things that we know are important, like learning that you can't say, why did you wear that skirt up to the party? Or right. why didn't you keep your legs closed? You know, things like that. I mean, that all, that's all about the law, but it's also about stereotypes that we have about women, um, especially. So that's part of the training, too. So it's about modernizing the institution, training people that have a huge amount of power in our system. Um, and so I just keep educating yeah. <laughs> why it's important to modernize all of our institutions. No, it's good. And you know what? We're, let's see what we can do on this. Uh, we'll try to well, get you back you. next week for an update, okay? That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Anytime. Thank you so much for okay. your time on this one. That's Rana Ambrose, a very familiar face and voice, former leader of the Conservative Party. Remember, she took over after Stephen Harper quit, and she did a great job as the interim leader of the Conservative Party. You know, finding alternative energy sources is always big news, right? Being able to generate electricity from the wind, the sun, and from water, well, those have really marked some big strides forward. But can we do more? Turns out, yes, we can. How about generating energy from falling snow? That would really be something, wouldn't it? Well, scientists say they've actually managed to do this. Researchers at UCLA, in cooperation with Canadian scientists at both the University of Toronto and McMaster University, have actually revealed their mechanism in research this week. It involves producing a relatively simple, looks like, silicone platform that harnesses energy from falling snow. How does it work? How quickly can we make use of this? Well, for those questions and more, we turn to Mayor Alcadi, who's a UCLA chemistry researcher and the co-author of this project and the research. Well, Mayor, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm going to start here by asking you to explain this whole thing. Like, are you talking about generating electricity from falling snow? Yes, that's exact, that, exactly what we made. So we made uh, a device that uh, creates electricity from the falling snow. And we call that device triboelectric nanogenerator. Uh, well, it sounds so technical, right? Yeah. So uh, let's make it simple. So if you ever got yourself a truck by touching the doorknob after rubbing your feet against a carpet, that's exactly the way our devices work. This is a static electricity. So what you really have is one material that's willing to give up electrons and another material that likes to extract these electrons. So the snow is that first material that likes to give up electrons, and we just created the device that can extract these electrons so we can convert that into electricity. And voila, we have electricity. <laughs> 
So that's the that's our devices. That's what we made. Okay, you just made it sound so simple. But if it was so simple, why hasn't anybody done this before? So, well, that's an excellent question. In fact, the idea of the snow getting or getting uh, uh, a static charge has been known for decades, but it was never used for creating electricity. It was actually discovered back in the 1960s. Some scientists and researchers, I think they were some physicists at the Imperial College uh, of London, and they found the mechanism by which snow creates electricity when, another, when it, it comes in friction with another snow particle. And they tried to create electricity out of it, but they, they failed. And there were like multiple trials. They were trying more to understand what's happening. There was like more progress that was you know, uh, going on in the 1970s, they found the exact mechanism there, but it did not happen until like in the 1990s that the U.S. Army, they got a research center. Uh, it's the Cold Regions Research Center in New Hampshire. And what they tried to do is they tried to create electricity from ice. They tried to grow some, some ice layer on uh, uh, a cylinder of a stainless steel. And then they got a belt around it made out of different materials. And as it's rotating, they could, they could generate an electric field with a very high voltage up to like 1.2 kilovolts. Well, that sounds great, but it's not practical because that's not extracting energy from snow. It's actually they're using ice for this to, to work. So we actually got... The first trial of creating electricity from the falling, from the falling snow, we just uh, understand the static electricity. We thought that the snow is willing to govern the electrons. Then why not bring another material with the opposite of charge, you know, so that we can extract these electrons and convert them to electricity? And we, we got our device that way. Okay. So scientists over the years have come up with brilliant methods to extract the energy from the fundamental forces that we have in nature. You've got the water, you've got the wind, you've got the sun. We have devices that can harvest all these energies. But now for the first time, we're creating a device that, you know, harvests electricity from the falling snow. And the reason why this is very exciting is because you can't tell. I mean, every winter we get more than 30% of the earth of the land all covered by snow. Right. So we have a huge source of energy that's just waiting to be collected. And we, we now made the device that can do that. So how big is this device and can it be deployed anywhere? Well, hey, well, that's another good question. Yes. Well, this is made out of, uh, of silicone, which is basically a rubbery material. It's used in lubricants. It's used in electrical insulations. It's a very cheap material you can find it. And also, like, actually, it's used in biomedical implants as well. Um, so that silicone, it's available actually in the form of a paint. So it can be painted. Uh, we envision that these, uh, this layer of silicone right, can be painted on buildings. On one hand, to provide protection against humidity and against water, because you need that during the constructions anyways. You need a layer that provides the protection against water. So, so we can have that silicon layer, which is our device, basically uh, as a venting on constructions and buildings. So on one hand, to provide the protection against water, but on the other hand, it can also create electricity at the instance when the snow is uh, falling. So it can be made into any uh, size. Uh, it's stretchable, it's flexible, it's ultra-thin, 
we can make it at any size. Right now, we made like the prototypes at the lab scale. They're the size of uh, like uh, a few inches wide. It's not so big, but but it's just very easy to scale up because the materials are very abundant and you know they can be painted on large uh, areas. Right. This is very, this sounds very exciting, and it sounds like it would have immediate potential. Is there a lot of interest in this? Are you already getting people asking you about manufacturing this? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, we heard we actually got a lot of emails from different people trying to uh, see potential uh, for commercialization of these devices. What I would uh, respond to these questions is, we're just at the beginning. We made the device. We demonstrated the concept here. We have a proof of concept of our, you know, our device and how it works. We, we showed that it can extract the electricity, but we are still looking to improve the power output of this device. And that's what we have left here. So we're, we're working. We're, here, we're busy here trying to improve the power output for our devices so then we will have... Um, will have very high efficiency for our devices at the end of the day. Okay, so then how much energy does this create? Like, can it power a building? If a building uses this as their membrane, can it power that building, or how much energy? At the time, it will not be enough electricity to power buildings. But we are um, basically, it, just to give you an example for analogy, uh, we... Uh, the tribal electric generators, you know, it's, it's a very recent area of research. And maybe, like, if you ask me, like, 10 years ago about this, you know, we scientists didn't know much about this at all. It was not even existing. So um, at the time when the first tribal electric nano generator was developed, the power output was very, very low. When you compare it to a solar cell, it's about, like, a thousand times less efficient than a solar cell. So uh, with time, with less than a year... You know, scientists were able to get the power output to exceed that of the solar cell, just to get the idea. So if you have a solar cell or solar panels that's covering the uh, ceilings of your building, they, they got enough electricity to power your building, right? And that's what we're looking for. We're trying to make or to improve our performance of our devices so that they are, at least they are on bar with solar cells, if not exceed their power performance. Ah, okay. So then how far away do you think, Mayor, that we are from actually using this uh, in our everyday lives? Like, when can we use this and it'll be able to help us with energy issues? Uh, I would say, well, this is a research question. So we've got a lot to do in the lab to improve the performance here of our devices. But I would say within uh, a couple of years, we could have something. That's pretty impressive. Listen, thank you for explaining to us. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. That's Mayor Al-Khadi, who's a UCLA chemistry researcher and the co-author of this research, along with researchers as well from McMaster University and the University of Toronto. Some like, pretty exciting stuff. Here's something you don't see often in farm country. Dozens of animal rights activists being marched out of an Abbotsford hog farm after a brazen early morning protest raid that saw them shooting pictures through windows and lining the walkways of the facilities where pigs are raised for meat. 
You may have remembered hearing about that story. That was Paul Johnson reporting for Global News last weekend. And that is when about 200 animal rights activists descended on that Abbotsford uh, hog farm to protest what they're alleging is abusive treatment of the animals inside. There were about 50 of the activists who actually entered the barn at Excelsior Hog Farms on Sunday morning. And then there were more than about 100 or so supporters gathering outside the property that they were singing and waving signs. So the police showed up, removed the protesters from inside the barn, but no one was actually arrested. But I was watching that story on the news, right, on Monday or Sunday, Monday, and I realized, well, that's a very familiar face I saw that was actually one of the protesters, uh, one of the organizers of the protest, former RCMP officer, former RCMP corporal, Dan Moskaluk uh, from the Penticton area. You probably, if you don't recognize the name, you'd recognize the face, you'd recognize his voice if you saw him. For years, he was the voice of the RCMP for the interior of this province. So you saw him countless times on the news. So how does somebody go? from enforcing the law to crossing the protest line and then being on the receiving end now of dealing with the police. I thought, you know, there's got to be an interesting story there. So we caught up with Dan Moskaluk yesterday and got him to talk to us about this. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. I have to tell you, I I saw you on the TV in the last week or so uh, at those protests out at the pig farm. And I thought, wait a minute, I know that face. You must get that a lot. Yes, uh, I do, and I have uh, for those that uh, that have seen me out and about. In fact, the first time was actually a Vancouver police officer when I was uh, back at one of the functions, the March to Close All Slaughterhouses in Vancouver, on on, on the steps of the uh, art gallery. And I went over to after the march. I went over and I spoke actually at, at that one as well. So I went over to talk to the three guys that are on motorcycles and assisting us with our safety, and uh, came over to thank them. And uh, we were chatting, and all of a sudden the guy pointed his finger at me. He said, "Hey, wait a." Second. Second, and um, he said, "You're Dan Moskaluk, the media guy, and you survived cancer, right?" And yeah, so the conversation ensued. So yeah, there's some some double takes. Yes. Yeah, I have to ask you then: How does one go from being an RCMP spokesperson, kind of well-known face for speaking for law enforcement, to being on the other side of that, to being a, a protester? Well, I, I think it could be a very natural progression. You know, as a pol- veteran police officer with 33 years of service, you know, my whole sole intention of being, a, of being a policeman was to help victims and communities themselves. And it was to assist those who were victimized and at times downright brutalized in some cases, you know, from, from battered women to physically abused, sexually abused children. And it's usually in those all these years is it's the most vulnerable that are that are victimized. So... Um, my role has been one to trying to prevent violence or intervening when there is violence or victimization. And, and essentially, it's my training in years as actually as a police officer that's galvanized this response, uh, you know, into my fabric to recognize what victimization looks like and to know when there's a time that somebody should be intervening and helping. The only thing now is that it's, you know, it's crossed over to, to all species now. How did that happen then? So you retired as an RCMP officer. What has life been like for you? Well, I, oh, it's a long story. How many minutes do we have? <laughs> but no, it. Uh, you know, I think the you know the public and I, I'm so thankful to the support that I had. Uh, 
between 2013 when I took uh, a leave of absence from uh, from my diagnosis of stage 4 cancer and, and there was a, a health recovery that uh, that occurred uh, um, by and large part of, of adopting a whole food plant-based uh, lifestyle. Now being homebound, uh, you know, you're, you're researching, you're reading and it's not much else you can do when, when you're not very well. Looking at this lifestyle, there's three doors that people will come through. For us, it was health. The other doors are, are of course, animal ethics and the environmental reasons for, for looking at uh, leaving animals off our plate. So for us, it started with health. And then the more I read and then the more I learned about uh, you know, the treatment of animals in this industry, and uh, then that spills over to the to the evidence, the science-based evidence, as how this is linked into environmental degradation. Um, it, it's you know it's a, it's kind of a no-brainer. So that's how it evolved, right. and what piqued our curiosity was to become more active in the communities that around us to uh, to uh, you know help these these victims, the, these animals. You said you were diagnosed with stage four cancer. How are you now? Well, stage four kidney cancer, which apparently is a is a terminal diagnosis with a five percent chance of making to five years, and uh, I was given months to two years, um, and uh, I was on uh, an immunotherapy uh, trial study drug uh, briefly. Uh, I was supposed to be on that for the rest of my life. However, shortly into the study and the treatment, I had a near fatal attack, so I was dismissed from the study, and I haven't had medical intervention since 2014. Um, the cancer itself, again, would have been growing for 20, 20 years. I went into the diagnosis extremely healthy, um, and uh, my physicians and, and medical team were, were frankly quite amazed as to that I went into the remission, and then within 15 months, the cancer was radiologically undetectable. Um, and so amazing. today, now, five years plus, I'm, I'm still cancer-free. That is and amazing. I'm healthier than I've been. What, yeah. do you, what do you attribute that to? I attribute that uh, mainly to uh, to uh, uh, eliminating animal products out of my diet. Like 100%. And was that a change that you made after your diagnosis? Yeah, so that my wife, Sean, got us into it. Uh, you know, she had some health issues and weight issues. And uh, 2011, our son was getting into weightlifting, started looking at proteins. She started researching proteins. The more she learned, she says, she, you know, we're doing this in the household. She dropped 133 pounds from 300 pounds in those two years. In those two years, I was about 95%, you know, was eating that way in the house and then still scarfing crap down when I was out and about and working shifts. And uh, But I, um, at the beginning, 35 pounds overweight, metabolic syndrome, pre-diabetic, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, all those markers disappeared. Uh, but, you know, again, and everything came to a head uh, November 9th, 2013, when I got the diagnosis. And in the hospital that night was the day and the time exact second that I committed fully to a plant, whole food plant-based diet, not just vegan, but very much stricter than, um, you know, some processed or, or, or transitional foods. Yeah. So I can see how you definitely believe in this, but what led you to then start protesting uh, at some of these protests? And I went, how is that, how do other protesters kind of take that as they have a former RCMP officer here on the line with them? Well, initially, too, there's the, some individuals, of course, there's some uh, caution, uh, but I think people have known me, um, or those news, that was those that are news watchers or in the communities yeah. that have worked, they've, they've known, you know, my integrity and my ethics and, and how I've represented uh, the victims and, and, and the communities uh, doing best by them. It was interesting, and, and it was always put to them that 
I think I'm uh, I'm an asset uh, for not only for the active inside, but all, as well for law enforcement. So th- we were warmly embraced quite quickly, actually, and, and given, I guess, maybe our age, the demographics of, of, of this social movement is, is spans, uh, you know, the whole gamut. How, so how, what kind of advice have you been able to give the protesters and how do you use your kind of law enforcement background now in this particular area? Well, again, with my police experiences, I can date back to, you know, the the pepper spray incident at, at uh, UBC and when there was the arrests of individuals and, and so on to some of the other protests that we've had. And uh, I think what I, for on the side of, for the, you know, concerned citizens slash activists or, or what, what you want to call them, that um, people are kind of afraid of the police at times. And, and when they step out of the norms of society and joining activism in that. So what I want to achieve essentially is just that, you know, this is what's expected of you, uh, you know, uh, in lawfulness and, and so on, and what you can expect with your interactions with police, especially with animal rights activism now. When we look at some of the other social movements, uh, be it LGBTQ or, or religion or, 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 or environmental, those are kind of issues that, you know, they do affect everybody, but some of them don't. But when we look at the food and the treatment of animals, that kind of, cro- everybody, you know, everybody's kind of involved in this. So sometimes you might get uh, an implicit bias mm-hmm. uh, that's displayed by by uh, uh, the police of jurisdiction. By by and large, though, we do see exemplary conduct and and uh, the role uh, that we see. So I guess it's you know what the activists um, can expect from how you know by their behavior and, and you know what what's going to jeopardize their 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 lawful standing and so on and then also though is that to to give them an idea as to what they can expect from their the conduct of the police and what they should expect uh and again i always preface this i'm not a lawyer but i think i do have a pretty good perspective with 33 and a half years service as a police officer and and that you know have a pretty good idea as to what certain boundaries are and but again people at times as well and and we've communicated this with my former employer that we do want people to know that there are avenues that they can take uh that if there is certain concerns about how they've been treated or or, or so on and so forth so um and by and large too at times too there's de-escalation skills and this is another thing that i cover with activists as well is that at times because this is such a personal issue at times you and, and it, it happens to all of us is that okay at a certain point in time the, that police officer got to take a deep breath and say okay uh, let's try and de-escalate this but at times we see you know that sometimes it's the other individual that can de-escalate and uh, interestingly enough we saw that this sunday where it was one of our activists who was in you know a fairly serious situation uh confronted by one of the farmers that uh, it was the activist that de-escalated Right. So you're providing some pretty valuable advice here that it seems to me that I've never heard of somebody being in the kind of position before that you find yourself in now. Yeah, I've been looking around the globe. And uh, <laughs> because, again, this is one of the largest growing social movements on the planet right now, because we face such an existential threat with what's going on with our climate, with the extinction of species. And one of the largest contributing factors is eating animals and it's one of the things that we can all do as individuals if we really seriously look at this what's the easiest thing i can do and that's to change what's on your plate you know we can't stop heating our houses we can't stop driving our cars you know in one fell swoop 
But you can really just sit there and say, you know what, I can be extremely healthy. I can be healthier uh, by, by adopting a plant-based diet. We've looked at the Canada Food Guide now is focusing on plant-based nutrition. There's a reason why. But, and then little baby steps, of course. But to re- This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Please seriously consider it. Well, you've certainly done a very convincing job. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. All right. Thank you, Simi. That is Dan Moskaluk, former RCMP officer, RCMP spokesperson for that matter, well, let's talk about federal politics, shall we? Like, we're months away from a federal election, but ever since that bombshell was dropped by the Global Mail newspaper, I think it was back on February the 6th, involving Jody Wilson-Raybould and the Prime Minister's office and the Prime Minister, everything we've kind of known about the landscape of that upcoming federal election has changed. It was kind of like a political earthquake when that happened. So now there's all these questions. How are people going to vote? Are people's minds being changed? Have they decided how they're going to vote? What does all of this mean? It's the kind of stuff that pollsters love, right? So we're going to get into what pollsters are thinking right now, what they've been asking you about that same question. Uh, But we are also asking you in our hot question of the day today about whether or not you've made up your mind. Or can you still, you know, are you still leaving it and thinking, I can be swayed. I want to wait and see what happens. Uh, We've got hundreds of votes on this at our hot question of the day, which you'll find at Simisera980. 83% saying that, yeah, they've already decided they know how they're voting. Another 17% uh, say, no, they can be swayed. I have a feeling that some of the people who've said yes, though, are also people who've just decided who they are not voting for. Do you know what I mean? Like they just know, they just know they are not marking the ballot with that person or that party, uh, but they maybe have not fully decided where they are committing their vote. Now, this is a big issue. And also an update on that front today, a significant change too. Uh, A recent poll showed that environment and climate is very high up on the list of things that Canadians believe will be a hot topic in the federal election. And so because of that, this news today, I think, is even more significant that the Court of Appeal in Saskatchewan, by a a vote of three to two, has decided that the federal carbon tax, so the efforts by the federal government to impose a carbon tax across the country, is constitutional. That's a big blow for Saskatchewan because they are fighting this thing. And Premier Scott Moe in Saskatchewan has said they will be appealing this. So it will likely go to the Supreme Court of Canada for more on that. Uh, But meanwhile, on the federal side of the federal Trudeau government is saying, hey, this is great. We always believe this is true. uh, And we, you can bet they're going to be campaigning on this. So is this something that could boost that party's fortunes? Well, they could use it, right? They could use all the help they can get right now. Because if you look at this latest poll from the Angus Reid Institute, the Trudeau Liberals are really, really down and could use that assistance. Executive Director Shachi Curl from the Angus Reid Institute uh, broke down some of the results of the poll earlier this morning. 
What happened in the 2015 election, John, is that you had a number of people across disparate political views who had had enough of Stephen Harper and the Conservatives and said, we will line up against a single party and a single leader uh, and, and really sort of come together under that banner in order to achieve a change in government. What we see now, six months from the election, is that coalition is largely fracturing. So these were not dyed-in-the-wool liberal voters who had been doing so for generations. Many of them uh, decided to switch a vote, change a vote, and now they're ticked off. They're not happy with the way the Liberals have been performing on a number of issues. Uh, the SNC-Lavalin case really broke Trudeau's brand because it turns out he was not the kind of politician that he promised to be. Uh, he was a regular garden-variety politician that puts his pants on two, two legs at, or one leg at a time like the rest of us. And that has proven disappointing. So where does that support go? It is going green, particularly in British Columbia, particularly among young voters. And so we may be on the precipice of something of a moment for Elizabeth May here. Isn't that interesting? Because like British Columbia is also one of the few provinces in the entire country that has some extensive experience with the Green Party, not just at the local levels, right? Municipal elections, like at the city of Vancouver, uh, but also on the provincial level, where you've got the Green Party that holds the balance of power in our legislature. Has that provided some kind of a, a breakthrough for them, perhaps on a federal level as well? So with those polling results in mind that we just heard there, is it possible that we could see a situation where where Canada ends up with another minority parliament? Um, I mean, if we see a minority parliament, there could be all kinds of permutations. I think what we may be on the precipice of seeing is is uh, a Green Party that finally gets more than one MP elected. Uh, Elizabeth May herself has been promising uh, tens and dozens for many years. Uh, this may be the year that, that we see it for the first time. We're seeing uh, the Greens polling uh, at uh, beyond uh, single digits. Uh, mm-hmm. They've cracked 11% in, in this particular poll that we've put out today. But everything must be viewed within the trend uh, and so So we have to see if they can sort of replicate those numbers. Yeah, that'll be the big question for the Green Party, right? Can they take the numbers and actually have a breakthrough? And of course, leading the pack right now is the Conservative Party. So how are the Conservative Party members feeling these days with everything that is going on? Absolutely. If anyone else is is uh, really sort of gleeful uh, at how things are going in Canadian politics today, it is Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives. Uh, they are within striking distance of uh, being able to form a majority government if an election were held tomorrow. Um, and again, some of that has to do with former Liberal voters drifting to the Conservatives. They will probably lock in and stay with the Conservatives. But the task for just Justin Trudeau, if he wants to form the next government, is to convince uh, people who have left him for the Greens, for the NDP, and uh, importantly for the undecided column, to come on back under the red banner, uh, to come on back to the Liberal Party. That may be a tough call, given how ticked off voters are at him in particular. He might want to think about some different spokespeople to make that case. Yeah, that's exactly. It's going to be a tough call. But you know what? From what we've seen, or from what I've seen and noticed anyway over the last couple of months, is that the federal Liberals seem remarkably tone-deaf to some stuff that they should not be doing when it comes to messaging and communications, and yet they uh, 
still go out there and do it anyway. No sign that that's actually going to change heading into the fall's election. Here's something else that's interesting. With all those results, though, the Angus Reid Institute also found that the top three party leaders each have pretty low popularity ratings. So individually, people are like, yeah, I'm not crazy about that person. However, there is one leader that does have a positive approval rating, and that is Green Party leader Elizabeth May. She's always been more personally popular, certainly than her own party and than the other leaders. And it's sort of the Ed Broadbent factor. Ed Broadbent was uh, the NDP leader in the 70s and 80s. Uh, He was leader for 13 years. The party didn't really do all that much. They had a breakthrough moment in 1984, won a bunch of seats at the time. He was the most popular leader in the country. But, you know, when when there are lowered expectations for a party leader, when there isn't an expectation that you will form government, it allows a leader to sort of stick around, become familiar, get comfortable with the electorate. And, you know, people people may not know about what Elizabeth May's platform might look like under a green uh, banner, but uh, they remember her from debates mm-hmm. uh, and they go, huh, well, we like her. She seems okay. Oh, I think that's a great point that Shachi Curl just made there, right? Like, if there's no hope of a leader becoming prime minister, they escape the kind of scrutiny that the other party leaders receive. And so with Elizabeth May, you go, yeah, she did a good job. I like her. But how much do people or voters, how much time have they invested really in finding out more about that? Well, it's something we're going to find out. You wanna- what does spending time in prison do to a person, in particular to someone who is innocent but has been sent to prison because of a wrongful conviction? That's what we're going to be talking about right now in this latest episode of Canada's Wrongfully Convicted. This is a series that they have been doing on the John McComb Show all week long, and it has just been fascinating. And today, they take a look at the psychological impacts of being convicted of a crime you didn't commit. What say you, Madam Four Person? Is the defendant not guilty? Guilty of murder in the first degree? Guilty of murder in the first degree. Your heart sinks. Your stomach drops. You've been convicted of a crime you did not commit. And before you know it, a guard has cuffed you. And you're off to prison. Freedom lost. It's quite a thing to be found guilty. But imagine languishing in a jail cell for years, even decades. This has been the reality for dozens of Canadians who've been found guilty of crimes they had no involvement in. In this episode of Canada's Wrongfully Convicted, we delve into the psychological impact of having your life turned upside down by a wrongful conviction. Prison's a pretty horrible place for anybody. If you've ever been in one, I think you'll know that. If you feel like you're there unjustly, I think that that just compounds the the effects. That's Catherine Campbell, a University of Ottawa criminology professor who studies cases of wrongful conviction. I did some research. We looked at coping mechanisms of the wrongly convicted who were jailed, and many of them talked about becoming obsessed with their case because, you know, they wanted to find a way to get out and also being very preoccupied with injustice once they were finally released and that idea of being intolerant of any kind of injustice because they had experienced one. The nightmare scenario of being locked up for something you didn't do 
can only truly be explained through the eyes of someone who's been there. We've told you about Rob Baltovich's story in the last episode of this series. In 1992, Rob was convicted of murdering his girlfriend, Elizabeth Bain, in Toronto. Robert was sentenced to life in prison with no eligibility for parole for 17 years. Somewhat optimistically, somewhat naively, I still felt like I was going to get out sooner rather than later. I had an appeal, so I put most of my faith in the ability of my appellate lawyer to get me out. Ultimately, he managed to appeal his sentence and was freed after eight years behind bars. However, it would take another decade before he was finally able to clear his name. Rob says the early days were the easiest, getting by with the support of his family and friends who stood by him and his claims of innocence. You just have to make certain psychological adjustments. It's not easy, but I think that, you know, if you keep busy, if, if you're a strong person, and obviously that varies between people. For me, the main thing is I just kind of went into survival mode. And I thought to myself, you know what, I don't know how long I'm going to be here, but I'm not going to let myself be consumed by self-pity or anger or despair. And that worked right up until the moment my mother passed away. And that's when things started to get a little bit darker and a lot more difficult. It was really scary, but at the time, you couldn't tell anybody because nobody was really listening. Maria Shepard spent 25 years under a cloud of suspicion for the manslaughter of her three-and-a-half-year-old stepdaughter. In 1991, Maria Shepard had three children and was soon to become pregnant with her fourth when she was convicted and jailed. Thanks to faulty evidence submitted by now-disgraced pediatric pathologist Dr. Charles Smith. Going into the prison system as a woman that is pregnant and you're innocent at the same time, when I left after I was sentenced by Justice Langdon, I was placed in a paddy wagon dressed in a maternity dress, and I was shackled at the feet. I had a whole other perception of what prison was going to be like. And then I get there, and as I'm being processed through admission and discharge, I'm told that when I get brought upstairs to the protective custody range, that I'm to tell other inmates that I was there for murdering my husband. Because if they find out that you're there for an offense on a child, you're done. Anything related to a child in prison is pretty much, it's pretty much a death warrant for the most part. And I think my pregnancy is likely what saved me. You know, I was supposed to say all, all of this that I, I murdered my husband, but meanwhile, I get upstairs and there's a large TV in the prison range and there's the news. So they knew, they found out very quickly about me. And then when I was transported and classified and sent over to Vanier Center for Women, where normally they don't provide protective custody, they extended my protective custody privileges, I'm presuming one, to protect their own liability, and two, because I was pregnant. As soon as I got into admission and discharge at Vanier, there was an inmate already sitting there waiting to get processed to go back into the system and into the prison, and she was very clear with me. She said, you know, we've all been waiting for you, and you're here. So watch your back.
Maria says her time in prison and interactions with fellow inmates amounted to a harrowing experience. As a baby killer, as I was known, I was known as a convicted baby killer for all those years. And people just, you're the scum of the earth. You were just the absolute horrible worst person that could ever walk the face of the earth. And that was hard to live with. And it's still hard to live with. I was threatened by an inmate previously and didn't care whether or not she killed myself or my child. I mean, I don't know how many times I, that I can recall being told, we've been waiting for you and we knew you were coming. I still have PTSD. There's certain smells I can't handle. I can't handle certain sounds that remind me of the prison doors closing, the sound of the, the when, when they're electronically closing, the large gates to your cell or the doors to your cell. I can't have music playing when I sleep at night because I used to have a small radio that I would put to my stomach for the baby and that's how we would fall asleep at night. So I can't have that anymore. Little things, certain foods that remind me of ministry foods. I was recently speaking uh, at a university and happened to walk through a hallway and the hallways were made of concrete. And I remember looking up and thinking, you need to get me out of this hallway because it looked like the prison, looked like the walls of the prison. Being on another speaking engagement, I remember looking up and it was very much like a watchtower inside a prison. So there's a lot of things that happen, certain sounds, certain things that happen on TV can trigger. I have uh, PTSD when I watch The Green Mile, um, Shawshank Redemption conviction, certain parts of movies that I can relate to, and sometimes I get really angry, and sometimes I get really inspired to want to continue advocating the way that I am. So it's hard to sum it up. University of Ottawa professor Catherine Campbell says studies prove the wrongly convicted often suffer high rates of PTSD, as well as severe depression and psychological problems. But in her discussion with people who've suffered injustice, they all have one thing in common. One of the things that they told me was they wanted somebody to say they were sorry, that they had made a mistake. What tends to happen in the system is it's usually not one individual, right? So sometimes you'll hear an apology. A prosecutor may apologize to a wrongly convicted person or when they're being exonerated, you know, we're sorry for this but it doesn't always happen. No, I haven't gotten an apology yet. Um, I'm still hopeful that I'll get one at some point. Uh, I can't quite understand it. I may never understand it, but I still kind of feel like there must be something out there that I haven't seen yet that might actually explain why it is that they did what they did and why it is that they feel justified for having done it, but I haven't seen it yet. Preeminent Canadian defense lawyer James Lockyer, who also helped Rob Boltovich walk free, says witnessing an innocent person walk out of prison is quite a moment. One of the wrongly convicted, Bill Mullins Johnson, he had been in prison for uh, 12 to 13 years. He uh, described how it was to walk out of the courthouse into his first moment of freedom. And he said, uh, it was the most beautiful sky I've ever seen.
And I remember it was overcast that day, you know. But to him, of course, it was the most beautiful sky he'd ever seen. He says despite the enormous impact prison has on a person's psyche, many people go on to do good things. They certainly leave with a whole lot more optimism than they go in. They will have some bitterness in them. They all seem to understand the problems of retaining that bitterness and do their best to to get rid of it. But they've all proved, for me, to be pretty remarkable people. Indeed, several of them have then worked on behalf of other people who are still in prison, wrongly convicted. And that's particularly uh, remarkable when you think about it. Some of them have preferred just to put it behind them and carry on with their lives uh, as best they can. I don't think any uh, of the people that I know who have been wrongly convicted, I can't think of any one of them uh, who has subsequently gone back to jail. Uh, I think they've always lived law-abiding lives thereafter, even those who uh, have some mental disabilities as a consequence of their wrongful conviction, because certainly some of them have walked out with with mental, uh, mental issues. That resilience that James Lockyer spoke of is, unfortunately, not the reality for all of those who've been wrongfully convicted. The mental health impact of their experiences can often leave them in psychological chains, even after the prison shackles have been removed. According to an article titled, It Never Ever Ends, The Psychological Impacts of Wrongful Conviction, by Leslie Scott, published in the American University Criminal Law Brief, they often developed PTSD, anxiety, and depression. Some resort to suicide. Violence in prison, both physical and sexual, can add to their deep mental scars. Once released, they often struggle to find employment due to their criminal records. Financially, they may be in ruin, both from the expensive cost of legal fees and their inability to find work. Their personal relationships are rarely as they left them. The never-ending suspicion of guilt can destroy social ties. In fact, many studies have noted incredible similarities between the psychological states of those who have been wrongfully convicted and veterans who have returned from war. Being locked up and denied your freedom for something you didn't do must have an enormous impact on your psyche, of course. One of despair, anger, bitterness, and not wishing to comply with the rules of the institution you're in either. Why should you? You shouldn't be there in the first place. James Lockyer was essential in helping to release Rob Baltovich and Maria Shepard. Find out how Rob and Maria were finally able to prove their innocence in the next episode of Canada's Wrongfully Convicted. We'll find out how a person in prison for a crime they did not commit can, if they're lucky, prove their innocence and try to rebuild their lives. Canada's Wrongfully Convicted was written and produced by Pippa Reed and Nikki Reitmeyer. For Global News, I'm John McComb. And that is the latest episode of Canada's Wrongfully Convicted. It's amazing to think that just a simple apology, right, could be so powerful for people to help them to forgive and move past kind of years of having to deal with this, having it hanging over their heads, and yet they can't 
even get that simple apology sometimes. It's all caught up kind of in legalese and liability and all that kind of stuff. Well, some pretty big news from the world of fast food promotions this week. The very well-known Tim Hortons Roll Up the Rim campaign is going to change. Now, it has been a staple for that chain for 30 plus years, which begs the question, has it just gotten too stale? Well, that's actually what the president of the company thinks, and they're now trying to figure out a way to modernize the contest for the digital age, as in they're thinking about using an app. And I'm thinking, well, how do you use an app for a Roll Up the Rim contest? Doesn't that take kind of the fun away from this? Well, why don't we ask the person who kind of came up with this idea back in the first place, back in the 1980s. Ron Boost is with us now, the former marketing director for Tim Hortons, created the Roll Up the Rim campaign, author of the book, Tales from Under the Rim, The Marketing of Tim Hortons. Ron joins us now. Ron, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me, Simi. It's good to talk to you. What did you think when you heard the news that they they feel like it's not doing as well and they need to update Roll Up the Rim? Well, I, I... I'll go by the same thing that customers do and take a look at the contest itself as it is today. Now, I may be wrong, and I, I, I've been to that, but it seems to me that the cups this year were produced very cheaply. <clears throat> that is, that the design work on it was rather poor. It was all just one color. There, was no, there were no pictures of the prizes at all, just a cup with an arrow. Now, I may be wrong, but that's, what I, that's the way I remember it. That in itself... D- diminishes the effect because who sits down to read a coffee cup? Nobody. But they do look at a picture of a car or of a TV or so a bicycle, wherever it is, and it increases more interest. That is so true. Like we see that, we think, I want that. I want to win that with this cup. Yep. You've got to also remember with advertising that if if you can get maybe thirty percent of the customer's attention, you're doing really well. Nobody sits down to read an ad. Nobody, except yeah. me, of course, because I like advertising. <laughs> but, but what I'm getting at is uh, you've got to really appeal to them. If you can get just enough interest to get them in the store, you've done a tremendous job. Now, I also had an email from somebody who suggested that one of the, part, one of the problems with this campaign now as well is that you never hear who wins. You don't, it's just like these prizes go out into the ether and you don't know, did somebody win the car? Did somebody win a you bike? Can, as far as I know, we used to do it anyway. You can contact the company and they'll send you a list of the winners' names. But that's no good. You want to see somebody with that prize that you, right? You can know that that prize was actually given out. Well, again, I don't know what they're doing now, but when I was running it and you had a car winner at store X in, say, yeah. Lancaster, Ontario, or whatever it was, you made a big hoopla out of it. The car would be delivered to that store, there'd be balloons, there'd be cake, everything. We'd give it all away. And we'd have invite people to come and see the winner of that prize. It was a very open contest. Uh, now, Ron, let's go back in time here. Tell us, how did you come up with this idea? Who, how did you create Roll Up the Rim? Well, you're going to be disappointed, I think, with the simplicity of oh. it. But <laughs> <laughs> really, it, this is how it happened. Uh, I had a meeting with our sole cup supplier at that time, Lily Cup, to uh, discuss Christmas cup designs, which we were doing. Before I went into the meeting, one of the executives of the company said to me, said, uh, Ron, could you give some thought to some kind of a contest or something we could do to stimulate coffee sales in the summer? Because it's a hot beverage, and in those days, that's all we had. So I said, fine. Now, that was my introduction to what we should do with the contest. That was it. I was the sole person running the advertising. There was nobody else. I, my staff was me. That's it. When I wanted an answer, I put my hand up. <laughs> so it was, it was the only thing going on. When we had the meeting with the Lily Cup, um, 
I st- at the end of the meeting, I said, uh, can you tell me something about how to manufacture, how you manufacture these cups? And they brought with them an uncut roll. That's a, it's the rolls of, uh, of cups are about six feet high. They're huge on these machines. But they brought me a chunk of it. And on it was a, was a picture of the upcoming cup. And they're stamped out like a, uh, like you stamp out a, a dress pattern. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's what I saw. So I said to them, well, can you print anywhere on this paper? And they sort of looked at me like I had one of the bricks drop off the load. And they said, yeah, we can, but uh, why would you do that? It's a waste of ink. And I said, well, that's that's just want to know what to do here. And I said, can you print in this space at the bottom of the cup, this white space? And uh, they said, uh, well, that's called a ledger line, which is used today. And it's the information there, the code, as to the type of cup, the size of cup, and the colors. So I said, well, what's this other white space at the top? Remember, I knew nothing about making cups at all, absolutely nothing. They said, well, that's the rim of the cup. I said, well, if that's the rim of the cup, it doesn't look like a rim to me. And they said, no, you put it on a machine, and it rolls the rim down. Ah. I said, can you can you print at that point? I said, yeah, but why would you do that? If you roll the rim down, you won't be able to see what's under it. You want to catch up with me? That's it. That's <laughs> I hate to tell you, it but that seems was, so that simple. Was, so, did you take that back to your bosses and go, "Here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this, and people are going to roll it up." Did anybody ever say to you, "Nobody's going to roll up the rim"? No, I was quite autonomous. Um, advertising was an expense and a luxury to the company at that time. There was no agency or anything. So, what I did do, which I was asked to do, was confront the store owners with it. So, we had a store owners meeting. I basically told them what I wanted to do. Would you accept it? And if you'd produce the product, the food product, coffee, donuts, muffins, and cookies, on a one and nine basis ratio, here's what it would cost you, which was about half a percent, one percent of the cost of the cups in a thousand cup case. I said, Would you like to give it a try? And they said, Sure. And away we went. How and successful then, was it at the beginning? I'm sorry? How successful was that at the beginning when you first started doing it? Well, it's a good question because people didn't really trust contests at all in those days. Uh, the calls that I get on it were, um, you don't give away prizes, There's, there's you, you cheat, you lie, you know, everything. It's just awful stuff to get because the reputation for contest was not good. When they started to say that, what we did was we, there are big pictures in the store, 11 by 14, it's big, bigger than that, I'm sorry. You, you know the posters? Yeah. And I converted those posters and started printing the names on of the various winners. Not their address and phone numbers, but just the name of, you know, Joan Smith or right. Simi from uh, B.C. or whatever. And uh, it got to be that we didn't have enough room. There were so many of them. By that time, people started to really believe that we were giving away real prizes. Uh, as I said, with the cars, when we got into those, the first ones were Jeeps. And uh, we'd have a, a real co- a real celebration. They'd come out, and we'd see people. We invited the, the various dealers eventually to park the cars out in front of the store so they could sell them from there. We did actually sell cars from the front of the store. You're kidding me. No, no. The customers would come by and say, I like that. they go back to the dealer. The dealer said, can I have my car back? I've sold it. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what it was all about. We but worked very closely together with people like that. This was an iconic promotion for so long. Where do you think it's gone wrong? Have people just gotten tired of these contests, or does it need to be refreshed? Well, as I said, uh, the first thing I do is, is come back to the basics, because I think the current owners have missed that completely. 
Uh, give it some pizzazz, for goodness sakes. Uh, show some color and life in the cups. The cups were the main vehicle. When we started, the success of this contest really was noticed because when people started to believe it, they began jumping over the counter to get at the cups. They dump out garbage pails out on the counter out of the lot to be able to get the cups. Are you kidding rolled me? Up. No, no, I'm, it's honest. I'm telling you the truth. One guy that won a truck once had a pickup. It was an old beat-up thing, and he'd drink the coffee for him and then throw it in the back of the truck. At the end of the season, he thought, I'd better clean the cup out. And he did, and one of the cups had a truck on it. So he won it. It's all kinds of interesting stories. I see. Those are the great stories, though, that kind of make people want to participate. But I feel like we haven't heard many of those stories. Like the reputation of Tim Hortons has taken a bit of a battering the last couple of years, wouldn't you say? With a large sledgehammer. What do you attribute that to? Um, well, to be quite honest, when when we were we the collective group of us were working at the company. Uh, the store owners were king and queen. They really counted. These people that sold everything they had, bought a store and a franchise, worked 14 hours a day to make it work. You listened to what they said. You listened to them because they were your fingers and toes. But today it's a shareholder, some guy that cuts a check and wants part of the business. But that's not the person that's making the money. The person that's making is the store owners. And they're your fingers and toes. You listen to them because they know what's going on with the customer base. They hear them. And that's how we, we, we worked it. We worked very closely with them on that. I think that had a lot to do with it. So if you were to give them some advice on how to get back to where they were, what would you tell them? I think they're trying to now. Uh, give them full credit for that. I, I don't know any of the people that run the company now, the restaurant brands international. But uh, they're trying to come back on that. But. You know, it's very difficult to get somebody back to a company. Very, very, very hard. I think you'd understand that. It's much easier to keep a customer than it is to lose one. And also, there's an awful lot of competition now that wasn't when we were there. Um, we, we, we got things. We led the pack when we were doing it. That was the difference. We had to because if we didn't, we'd go broke. We had to come up with ideas and thoughts and work. New store designs, store locations, multiple stores, putting them on the highways, all these things counted so much, and uh, we broke a lot of barriers that way. So that that's the kind of thing that you need. Uh, do you see some universal rules and kind of the things that you learn from marketing and advertising at Tim Hortons that can apply to any company out there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's what I do in the presentations that I do. Um, I can't remember all the, the words of it because I'm not ready for that, but <laughs> uh, it, it it's a matter of, if you what, what did I say, if you... Uh, if you can, if you can't do it, you know you shouldn't be in the business. If if you if you don't want to really put yourself into it, then why why are you there? You either do it or you get out of the way and let somebody else do it. And as I said, we led the pack. And it's the same for any business, not not just uh, Tim Hortons and donuts and coffee and sandwiches, but anyone. If you can't be first, be the best. That's really what it is. Right. Um, listen, Ron, we can't thank you enough for joining us today. You're going to have to come back at some point because that was a lot of fun. Thanks for, thanks for your time. The phone. Thanks for being with us. That is Ron Boost, who's the former marketing director for Tim Hortons. He created the Roll Up the Rim uh, campaign, and he's written a book. It's called Tales from Under the Rim, The Marketing of Tim Hortons. He's also now a, a speaker across North America on the topics of marketing and leadership, and I found that just fascinating.